Today's passage is uh, Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Exodus 19, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. May God bless his holy word. Please be seated. Before we hear today's message, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, without your spirit, we are at a loss to comprehend. We need your spirit to guide our thoughts, to help us comprehend that which we need to, to show honor and glory to you by incorporating that truth into our lives. We ask that your spirit do its work within the word in our hearts this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's message is titled, Sinai, a covenant to advance God's blessing. And when you hear Sinai as a covenant, covenant of Sinai, you can also think synonymously with the, the Mosaic covenant. Those are one and the same. They're not different covenants. One identifies the location it was given. The other, the, the mediator by whom it came through. So you have the Mosaic or the Sinai and the key to this is that we're going to see today that it's a covenant that advances God's blessing. But to get us kind of thinking through a couple of things, to, um, to get our minds kind of focused on, on some of the workings or the uh, interaction that's going to occur today, let me pose a question to you. Uh, I've listed two ways to view the Bible. And I'll be frank with you. The first way I'm going to list is the way I first understood the Bible as a Christian. I'm not counting the time prior to me becoming a Christian. The second way is how I now view it. And there was a, a long time coming for this, so I want to, I'm just wondering as you pose, as I pose this to you, excuse me, will you find yourself in this? Was this a quick transition? Did you never hold the first way to view this? Or are you still in that place where you still hold this first view? So the first view is that you view this as a two-volume, Old Testament and New Testament, massive collection of individual stories with underlying moral principles for practical use. Now, don't get me wrong, that, that is true of it, but is that the predominant view of the book? Or, or the second view? You view it as one grand Amazing story, all interconnected, revealing how the one true God 
made it possible for his children to be restored back to him despite our rebellion against him. So one is a beautiful relational story. The other tends to be one-offs of moral stories, the VeggieTale version of the Bible. And you're just trying to be a better person. And you're not understanding what God is doing in his grand scheme and where you fit in the grand scheme relationally with him. I guarantee you the second will draw you into a desire to know him better. The first, you are simply trying oftentimes, unfortunately, in your own strength to be, quote, a good person. So with that, today we're going to see how God uses self-initiated covenants to progressively reveal and progressively incorporate different aspects of his plan of salvation. He's going to, we see this Bible through the lens of covenants. Now, I want to explain to you, the first four decades of my life, and I only became a, a believer in, really, in my, at age 23, so most of that, my adult life, I was taught that you see this book through epochs of time rather than covenants. So when I say covenant theology, I want you to be thinking, because you may not even realize it, or you may have been exposed to what I was exposed to, which is epochs of time when we had the, we had the God in the garden with us, and all was good, and then we had the fall, and then we have... Uh, uh, redemption, and then we have one day we'll have glorification. And those are, the o- those are the only categories I had. This thing of covenants was something that, well, you've got old and new. Old is old. You get rid of it. New is new. You hang out in the new covenant. Well, you don't understand the new covenant unless you really understand the progressive nature of the old covenants, plural, until we get to the covenant, the new covenant, the covenant of grace. So that's why I want to challenge you. I want to stretch you with that understanding. I believe you'll start to see this as a, a grand story, a, re, a story of desire for a relationship with you. As you, under, as you see it through the lens of covenants, God's self-initiated binding agreements with mankind to say, hey, I love you enough to engage you in this relationship. This is your requirement in the, in the relationship, and this is who I am in the midst of the relationship. It's all relational. That's what covenants deal with. One of the things I want to note, if you'll see on your uh, bulletin, particularly on the underneath, where, on the back page, where it deals with the uh, sermon outline, you'll see that um, we have a takeaway there. And one of the takeaways that, uh, really the primary, that's why it's called it the takeaway, is out of our identity as God's treasured possession... We function, or at least we should function, according to his original garden design. We're going to see what that is. As a kingdom of priests and a holy set-apart nation. Some of you who did not grow up in uh, a Reformed understanding, I didn't, certainly did not, may have heard uh, the um, priesthood of all believers. I was trying to think of the old phraseology. Priesthood of all believers. What is that? And I remember thinking, it kind of feels like it just popped up and someone said, that's what we are or do. We don't, I didn't have a reference for it. I didn't know where it, where it started, and I didn't know what that meant. And so I didn't know what, the, what, what that meant as far as me personally and in my life. 
And today I hope I answer that for you because the, the Bible actually answers it for us. And so you can understand, well, I am a part of the priesthood of all believers, and what does that look like? Okay, so let's turn, as you follow the outline on the, on the back of that bulletin, you can see that we first turn to kind of a summary statement in these six verses. And I apologize. I don't want to apologize. I'll just give you a warning up front. It's only six verses. But man, is there a ton of theology here. And so we're going we're gonna to take time to slow down. You might have to listen to this sermon later. But if you can get this, this will help you understand deeper your relationship with God and what God expects of you today. So in this summary statement, we have it starts off in Exodus chapter 19, 1 and 2. And I want to note here, Pastor Peter has done an excellent job of this in Sunday school. Noting in the Hebrew, when there is a little tiny one uh, letter word in Hebrew that pushes the story along. This word, it's a wa, or some, some people say va. But this little, this little letter means while, or it means then, or it means and, or it means but. It means these different things based on context. But what it typically does, and what it's doing in the first 19 chapters, excuse me, the first 18 chapters, is it's pushing the story along. And so when you get to the 19th chapter, and that little bitty one letter is missing, as we start, it means there's a decisive break. This is the, the hinge pin. This is the fold in the chapter that says we're moving ahead into something different. The, the all, 1 through 18 was the story leading up to this, and now we're changing. We're going to, to slow things down, and we're going to get into the giving of the law, the, the establishing of the covenant. And so this is what happens right here. So there's a hard, decisive break right here in, in, the, in the literature. Let, let me continue on. On the third new moon, when they say new moon, that's the, begin, that's the first day of the month is another way of saying that. That's how the Hebrews express that term or that understanding of the first day of the month. So basically, roughly two and a half months since they left Egypt. That's where we are, time frame. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim. You know, you're starting to hear the past. That's what happened before. And then you're going to, now we're getting to the present, and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain. This is referred to as the mountain of Yahweh, or the mountain of God. You'll notice that, or you, I should say you'll re reflect back earlier, uh, that God met Moses on this mountain when he was... Uh, was amongst the people of Midian. And he, God, uh, uh, comes and meets with Moses, and he's identified as the angel of Yahweh. And you recall, and some of you may not know this, so I'm going to restate it, the angel of Yahweh, and we, we spent a whole sermon going through how the angel of Yahweh is that of the person of Jesus Christ in form, not flesh. That's the, the cute little way you can remember it. Form, not flesh. That's the interaction of the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament that we see. So there we see, and it's, it continues on, and it says this in the actual uh, passage in, in uh, Exodus chapter 3. He appeared to him, that is this angel of Yahweh, this, the second person of the Trinity in form. He has the shape of a man. 
You can see him as a man, but no flesh. He doesn't do that until the, the covenant of grace, when he takes on flesh and comes here as a baby. And it says, appearing to him in a flame of fire, out of the midst of the bush. That was the bush that was burning, and there was fire in the bush, but the bush wasn't being consumed. Consumed as he studies this bush, and don't think of a little bush. Think of walking up on, on some of the bushes that we have in our desert, because he was in the wilderness desert area, where you have a large bush. And he's standing, and he sees this bush, and he's like, why isn't this bush consuming and, and breaking down? And then it's gone. The flame is gone. This bush continues to burn. And he, as he approaches God, in the person of the angel of Yahweh, he says, whoo Take your sandals off. You are on holy ground. Meaning, I am here. I am present. Thereby, I am, this ground is set apart from other ground. That's the picture there. So we see at this mountain, Horeb is the name used in the third chapter of Exodus. Here we see the name Sinai. This mountain, we see the Israelites camp before it wise move. These are the same Israelites that as God led them out of Egypt, that they grumbled when they didn't have water when they wanted water or thought their God wouldn't provide water. And they grumbled when they didn't have the food. Oh, the food that we had before. They didn't have the food and they grumbled. It's wise that they do not approach this holy set-apart God, but they remain at the mountain. So that's the summary statement of where we are. Now we're going to move into this covenant. And notice on your outline, it says the covenant proposed. This is Yahweh coming to the people of God through Moses, the mediator, the, the go-between, if you will. And, and he is going to propose a covenant with them. They can take it or leave it. It's proposed. It's not forced upon them. So let's take a look at this. And I want to first read to you what one commentator wrote. I think this is very helpful. I tried to word it myself about five or six different times, and I'm like, forget it. I'm going to read it to him. This guy says it better than I could say it. This is the, the commentator's statement. Two basic types of covenants existed in the ancient Near East. The, the parity treaty between two equal parties. Don't have that going on. We've got Israel, the, 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 rum, the grumbling rebels, and we've got God. Not, e not equal parties. So what's the other kind of, of covenants? The second being the suzerain uh, slash vassal treaty. It's talking about the two parties. Well, let's figure out what those two parties mean. The suzerain would be between a greater and a lesser. The vassal is the lesser. The suzerain is the overlord or greater in, in ancient Near East treaties or covenants. In the suzerain vassal treaties, the greater party, i.e. the suzerain, provided benefits such as military protection and land grants to the lesser party, the vassal. In response, the vassal owed the suzerain financial tribute. You won't gonna see, you're not going to see financial tribute per se. You're going to see worship here. I do find it fascinating that we give tribute. We give honor, glory. We, give our, we recognize what God has given us each day. We just got done doing it and we give back unto him. We can see remnants of that. We give, uh, excuse me, give tribute and consummate, and, excuse me, and consummate loyalty. Consequently, vassals could not, excuse me, could only have one suzerain or overlord. They only get one. For to take another lord or father would be tantamount to treason. 
certainly we can see components of what was understood in the ancient Near East as a known and accepted practice between greater and lesser kingdoms. And we can see God coming alongside and following this pattern here in this covenant we're about to see, this Sinai or Mosaic covenant. Okay, we see three phases. So again on your bulletin, uh, in the uh, outline, the sermon outline, you see the preamble. That's the first phase of the covenant. It's called the preamble, which is a fancy word for introduction. And Yahweh is going to introduce himself formally. They already know who he is, but he's following the pattern of this covenant or, or suzerain vassal treaty. And so we see him identify himself. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 3, the ESV, which is the Bible that we typically follow here, most of the church uses, some use others, says while. While is a contrast. One is doing this while the other is doing that. I believe the better contrast would be the word but. End the sentence which, with verse 2, and this is a new sentence here. It's not a comma, while. But is a stronger contrast. You have Israel encamped at the base of the mountain, but Moses is heading somewhere else. But, it says in verse 19, excuse me, in chapter 19, verse 3, Moses went up to God. Remember, when, when he's using these titles, there is importance. This is, Moses is the author of this book. Moses is writing about himself. He's purposely using words that have meaning. He refers to him as God. God is Elohim in Hebrew. It means mighty one. Yahweh means self-existent one, creator. It's who he says, hey, you, the people are going to want to know who I am. Because Moses says, what do I tell him is your name? And he says, call me Yahweh. It's a more personal name. I'm the self-existent God over all that is created. Therefore, there's no other gods, although they were going to claim to be gods. I'm it. I'm the one true God. And I'm going to enter in covenant with you unworthy you and me. Okay, let's continue. Let's look at this uh, from, uh, well, let's continue on with the verse. Moses, in other words, Yahweh's, uh, actually, this isn't the verse, this is a comment. Moses is Yahweh's faithful servant, is eager to come into the personal presence of God. Moses is headed up the mountain. The rest of Israel's not going up the mountain, not going to touch the mountain. In fact, you're going to see very specific instructions in a little bit. Moses, or excuse me, God is going to reinforce their actions and say, don't come up this mountain. You are not fit to, to be in my presence. Moses, his faithful servant, he wants to go up the mountain immediately. No waiting. Why is he so eager? Well, the obvious is he's God, and he's demonstrated he's God. He's wiped out the, the superpower, Egypt, they no longer have their military status because they have been decimated. He has taken 10 of their most powerful gods and brought plagues against them and shown, you got nothing against me. I am the only one true God. You are false gods. You are nothing to me. So Moses has experienced this. And Moses, of course, think if it's you or Moses. I'm heading up. Last time, God showed up to me, the person, the angel of the Lord. He showed up in my presence at the, on this mountain. I'm going to go see him again. I'm going up the mountain to engage God. That's the obvious one. 
But the second, there's something else going on that's going to motivate him. Let me re read to you from Exodus 3, 11 through 12. Exodus 3 is the interaction with Moses by way of Yahweh. He says this, But Moses said to God, or Mighty One, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I'm a nobody. I ran away. And he said, But I am with you. That's, the you there is singular. It's going to be important here. And when he says with you, we've talked about this. It means his presence. It means his power. And it means his authority. He is the only one true God. He, and because he created all, he has authority over all. So you get the bigness of who God is. But I will be with you. And this shall be to you, excuse me, this shall be the sign for you, singular, Moses. This sign is for you, singular, that I have sent you, singular, when you, singular, excuse me, that I've sent you, singular, and then when you, singular, have brought the people out of Egypt, you, plural, he's now saying y'all, y'all shall serve God on this mountain. He's there. He's back of the mountain. Everything that God said would happen, he demonstrated his presence, power, and authority. How are we going to serve? Moses wants to know, how is it that we're going to serve? So he heads up the mountain. There's more to go. There's more to come. He knows it. He's God's appointed leader. He's going to go find out. He gets the privilege of coming into the presence of the Holy One. This is amazing. And then you see in Exodus 13, 3 continued, Yahweh called to him out of the mountain. This is the formal introduction that we see in the covenant. This is the preamble. Yahweh, Yahweh's introduction, excuse me, he's introducing himself as the overlord or suzerain, saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, the vassal, that's the house of Jacob. Interesting, he does not refer to them as a nation yet. They are not a nation yet. They are not a kingdom yet. That comes with the, their acceptance of the covenant. They are not either of those. He sees and recognizes them as the house of Jacob. It's an enormous house, but it's still one family, not a nation. And tell the people of Israel. And then we move into, verse 4 takes us into the historical prologue. This, this second phase of the covenant. And in this, we see that, or we should take note, what Yahweh recounts. In this, pro, in this historical prologue, as he looks back, what is it that Yahweh identifies as important to history, important for them to know and remember? It's clear in what we're going to read in a second that Yahweh has already demonstrated his love, his protection, and his care for the, his people. That's what we're going to see in this historical prologue. In addition... He redeems them out of oppression. That means he has made them free to worship him. An oppressor wants control over you. An Think of Egypt. Pharaoh's the oppressor. All of the people are the oppressor. His people are dying under the, the weight of the oppression they are experiencing as slaves in Egypt. That's what an oppressor does. And along comes Yahweh frees them, redeems them, gives them value, freedom to worship the one true, all-powerful God. 
Let's read Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves, I have not seen this, and we preached, I preached all the way through Genesis, all the way to here. This is a, an ins, and it, normally when you have God emphasize something in the Hebrew, um, he will say, he will use a pronoun and he'll use the verb. All the verbs in, in uh, Hebrew have the, have the understanding of who it is that they're talking to. So if you add a pronoun, it's just redundancy. You're like saying it twice. Well, here he does that exact thing and he adds in yourselves. It's like a double-double whammy. He's trying to tell them, get an understanding. You. Now listen to this. He says, you yourselves, emphasize, have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Not somebody else. You're not hearing this second hand. You saw. You were eyewitnesses. You know I speak the truth. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't know what that means. I'm not a really good at poetry. I need some of these poets to explain to me or somebody who knows things like this to explain poetry because I'm a very concrete thinker. And sometimes poetry, I sit there and I go, I don't know what that means. I think I do, but I would hate to get it wrong. Well, fortunately for us, Moses, the author, when he comes to repeat the law to the second generation in the book of Deuteronomy, first generation had to die off, mom and dad and all the rebels had to die off before the second generation gets the retelling of the law and more law added on. Thank you, that, Lord, that you took more time to explain what this, this means, this, this on eagle's wings. Listen to Deuteronomy 32, 9 through 12. This is sometimes referred to as the Song of Moses. And he says this in Deuteronomy uh, 32, 9 through 12. But Yahweh's portion is his people Jacob. Still calling him his uh, people, not a nation. His allotted heritage. Verse 10. He found him in a desert. He's, he's talking poetic in this. He found him in a desert in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. If you've ever heard that terminology, you can know that it has a biblical basis for it. And then you see in, in verse 11, our key verse, like in, now listen to this. It's interesting. I did a little research. The, the female and the male. So both parents do this. This is a parenting metaphor or picture here. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Yahweh alone guided him, referring to Jacob or the great family, the house of Jacob. No foreign god was with them. No foreign god was active in the delivering work of caring and transporting them to where they are so they come into the presence of Yahweh at the base of a mountain, at God's mountain. Yahweh did all that, and he does it as a loving, caring parent. Here are the relational concepts, the, the beautiful picture. Now let me ask you this. Does not God's res rescuing work in our lives, his delivering or rescuing work, and you say, what are you talking about now, Nick? Saving us from our bondage to sin, that's what Jesus did by dying on the cross. We no longer are oppressed or controlled by sin. We now have the freedom to live out by the grace God extends to us our design. We were made in the image of God. We were made to be image bearers. 
Before we are redeemed, we, we bear a very ugly image, a false image of our God, an image that is all about us as God. But once we are redeemed, freed from this rebellion, this selfishness, we now have the ability by God to have an expression, a, a clear, transparent ex, expression of who he is. So does not God's rescuing work in our lives, saving us from the bondage of sin, have the same purpose? To bring us to his presence so that we can worship and serve him. We worship him, acknowledging what he has done. We serve him by being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, our design from the beginning. Well, let's take a look at the stipulations. So we've dealt with the preamble. We've dealt with the historical prologue. And this is the last component, the stipulations. And in this one we see it's both verses, Exodus uh, 19 verses uh, 5 through 6. We, a couple things you need to know. The stipulations are typically if-then conditions. And one of the things I don't like about the ESV is it dropped the vowel, the wa, that we talked about before, that can mean then, because they th- I'm assuming the translator thought, oh, it's not needed, it's implied. I'm a concrete guy. Leave that word in there. When I see if-then, I know there's stipulations. Sometimes if I don't see the then, I'll miss the idea or the concept of stipulations. So your Bible, if you've got the ESV, doesn't have that. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to show you where to park it. The other versions, many of the other main versions or major versions of the Bible, the translations, have that word in there, and I think it's more helpful. So we typically see in stipulations, if-then conditions. And at this juncture, we're early on. He's only proposing the covenant, so we're going to hear broad stipulations. We're going to hear... More specific stipulations in chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. It's the Decalogue. I'm really looking forward to preaching on the Decalogue. It's each of the Ten Commandments. I hope to share a beauty of the Ten Commandments that today's culture often misses and says, oh, that's Old Testament. That, That moralistic book, we don't use the Old Testament anymore. We stand in the New Testament. And so they're clueless to some of the things. They miss it. They don't see the lens that God intended, this progressive covenant that draws us into a better understanding of our God and our relationship. So we see that in Exodus 20 verses 1 through 17 is the Decalogue. Deca in Greek means 10, the 10 laws, the 10 moral laws. Then there's a little bit of pause between 18 and verses 21. It's going to be a little bit of narrative in there. And then you see, starting in in Exodus 22 through uh, chapter 23, verse 33, that's the end, you're going, to hear, you're going to hear all about, and you're going to see it referenced in there, but you may not have realized it. There's a, a book in there called the Book of the Covenant. So you've got the Decalogue, and then you've got the Book of the Covenant. All of this is what God is laying out as more detail to what the stipulations there are. In today's passage, he's just given an overview. This is what I'm going to do with the covenant. You guys, are you guys ready for this? Is kind of what he's saying. He's laying out because it's required. It's, it's like a, a formal agreement. Well, it's not like a, it is. It's a formal agreement. Some people have heard the word, in fact, Pastor Pete used it this morning, contract. You break the contract and you've got problems. So he's, he's, right now he's laying out, these are the, the, the broad categories. The Sinai or, or Mosaic Covenant will be ratified in chapter 24. Ratified is when the people, he's going to say to the people, are you in or are you out? Agree to the stipulations, or do you not? And that's what we see in chapter 24. But there's one thing of particular importance to note, 
and that is that God, or Yahweh, has already saved or redeemed the people before he presents the covenant. Many Jews, some professing Christians, miss this, and they think that we get to heaven, we engage in a relationship with God by way of earning our salvation or our right to engage God. God redeemed them. He did it all. He's the one that, that downed each of the main ten false gods in Egypt. He's the one that with them down and out, Pharaoh says, go, leave. But there's one thing to remember as well. The last plague, that last plague was a plague that was on all parties, not just the Egyptians, but was also directed towards or was capable of being placed upon, if you will, the Israelites. It was the death of the firstborn child. And they had to do something. They had to cover the doorposts with the blood of the Passover lamb. It was the blood of the Passover lamb who we now know they didn't understand. It was a new concept, is the blood of Jesus Christ. This, this was picturing that which would become evident later on. And that's what saved them, the blood of this Passover lamb. This is not works-based theology. The law is never, was never and is never intended to save you. It's designed as an expression of your love and covenant with God who did the work of saving you and me. Don't get that backwards. Don't put the law on the wrong side of the, of the formula or the equal signs. You don't want to do that. So, what, the, what he's getting, we're going to see here is this covenant, these stipulations, what they agree to should flow naturally out of their identity as redeemed people. That's what we're looking at. Now, let's look at this. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey, interesting enough, it's Shema, Shema. We've talked about this before in the Hebrew. Sometimes they part two verbs next to each other. And the reason they're doing that, they're emphasizing. Let me read it to you in a more wooden way. It would sound this way. Now, if you will indeed, uh, let me read it this way. Now, therefore, if listening, you will listen, is woodenly what that says in the Hebrew. Or another way to say it, if you're truly going to listen, if you're fully going to listen, then listen. Here we go. We continue on. If you, excuse me, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, how are you going to obey the voice? By keeping the covenant, the stipulations. What does that look like? I'm going to say things that are going to give you direction because I love you, you're my children, and you're going to follow them. You're going to obey my covenant. In other words, you're going to offer up exclusive loyalty and allegiance to me. No false gods. Not even you as a false god or me as a false god. And then it says, my voice and, and keep my covenant. This is where the ESV drops this word. Then, here's the then portion of the if-then condition. Then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you, emphasized again, yourselves, he did it again, shall be to me, you, you grumbling rebels are going to be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak, Moses, to the people of Israel. Do me a favor. 
in your uh, bulletin, you should have re, uh, had a little insert that I put in there. I'm going to show it to you. Remember I told you I like concrete things? I like to sometimes see things. I want to see this agreement. So I, I played it I, or I brought it out in a visual so you can see that. Look at verse 19.5 says this. Uh, verse 19.5 deals with the Israelites and the arrow represents what they must do. Truly obey my voice and keep my commandment. Or excuse me, my covenant. The mys are emphasizing the Lord there. And then in the insert, you see Exodus 19.6. Then, Israelites, then what's going to happen? You will be my treasured possession. That's an identity statement. Our identity drives our actions. You may not realize it, but our identity drives our actions. So much of us have to grasp the truth that we are God's treasured possessions. And if we can grasp that, which is difficult to grasp, there would be so much less sin in our lives. Because what, what can hold anything against us? If we're his treasured possession, what do you have to offer, world? Really? That? That sin? That's got nothing compared to being his treasured possession. We, we work out of the construct of our identity. But this is something neat about this particular, the way this wording is, is, is constructed. It implies a correlating purpose. And we even see this in 1 Chronicles 29, 3 through 5a. I wrote it at the bottom so you don't have to turn in your dictionary. Excuse me, dictionary. <laughs> there you go. And your Bible, you won't have to turn in your Bible. So look at the bottom. Watch this. This is David offering, his, this is his offering to the temple. And we're going to see what that which is his personal possession is going to be used. It's correlated for a specific purpose. We can see this played out in here. In verse 3, it says this, Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the ha- for holy house, in other words, by way of the contribution that the, Israel of, excuse me, that the nation of Israel has contributed to the building of the temple, he says, wait, I, you guys have contributed by way of what you brought. I've got something personally. This is my treasure. It's not shared with the kingdom. It's my treasure. I have a treasure of my own. In other words, a personal possession of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, of the, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver. And then the four there. This is the purpose statement. So he's got a treasured possession, but it, and not only is it it's treasured because it's his, but he's got a correlating purpose for it. He's been holding back this very valuable possession for a purpose. Let's see what his purpose is. For overlaying the walls of the house, which would have been with gold, and for the purpose, again, for all the work to be done by the craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. He's talking about the making of the utensils. Some of the utensils are gold. Some of the utensils are made out of silver. All of the utensils are used in the worship of God. And so you can see, oh, a treasured possession has, a, at least in this example, and we're going to see it in ours as well, that this treasured possession is for the purpose of advancing the worship of God. Now, this relates to who, who you and I are and what you and I do. So let's take a look at the advancement of God's blessing. That's bullet point number two on our outline. The advancement of God's blessing. Or you might say this, we understand. Back then, they only understood the the blessing as a blessing, a general understanding of good towards other people. We are in the new covenant. We now know that that blessing references God's plan of salvation. They didn't know it back then. 
He was hinting at it, but all he says to that is he identifies it as a blessing. So as we look at the then, then, what's happening then? In Exodus 9, 19, 5 through 6, and the advancement of God's blessing. Israel in covenant with God will be a kingdom of priests. You saw the, the correlating, I forgot to mention it on the insert. You shall be to me a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This is the correlating purpose statement. And we see that used in this, in this particular covenant, this Sinai or Mosaic covenant. So we have identity, possession. We have what we're going to do, our role, our purpose, kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The expression of kingdom of priests implies that the Israelites will have access to God as priests. Please hear this. This is a general reference to priests. God is going to establish in this Mosaic covenant the, the, priest, the, the priestly line of priests that can only engage with God in a certain way in the temple, and we couldn't, or they couldn't go into the temple. We now have full access to God because of the work of Jesus Christ. Don't confuse these. These are two different concepts in, in a sense that this concept is a general understanding of all the people have access to God in some sense. The priestly line of Aaron is going to have a, a more unique access so when we're speaking of this kingdom of priests, it's that general understanding of us, all of us in, uh, working as priests. It implies that Israel will have access to God as priests and rule as royalty. Let's continue on with this. You, as you hear this, you might be thinking, well, this is kind of new. It's not. We actually see this. This is a restoration of what took place in the garden temple. There were, we had a priestly role, Adam and Eve, in this general concept of priests. Let's take a look at this. That creation, Adam and Eve were instructed by God to work and keep the garden. As his vice regents is one way to say it, or as his royal representatives. I place you in leadership over a kingdom. Hello, you kings and queens. That's your role. And I've made you, so you're going to interact, you're going to minister to, you're going to advance the truth of who I am to the rest, in this case, back in the garden, it was to the rest of creation. There was no division of nations because there was no sin that divided the nations and had this group of people that rebelled against God and this group of people that is God's chosen people. So we see that those words, work and keep, and those are in Genesis chapter 2. Will work meant to fulfill Yahweh's creation command. Well, what did he give as a creation command? Be fruitful and multiply, subdue, and rule the earth. That's what he gave as his creation command to Adam and Eve. So we see that that is the work that these kingdom priests were supposed to do in the garden. And yet he also says, and keep. What does it mean, and keep? We, walk, we just kind of walk past that word oftentimes. I didn't know this until one of my professors, my language professor, pointed this out. Keep has the idea, it's always used, I'll put it this way, when it's in reference or context to the, the, yeah, the role of the priests, the, the, the priests from the line of Aaron, the priests that could only go into the temple and have certain roles as far as into the, the, the inner parts of the temple, and it became more and more exclusive. When that word is, re is used, it means to guard from, 
to protect against is the picture. And what were the priests supposed to guard against? Impurity coming into either the tabernacle or into the temple. They were supposed to keep, to guard and protect and not allow sin into that space. Adam and Eve were not supposed to. They're keeping what they were supposed to do in the purity of the garden. There's no sin. And yet God gives them this instruction to keep, to guard and protect the, the, the temple, this garden temple against the intrusion of sin. Think God had an idea of what Satan was up to? Do you see their priestly role? They're supposed to work advancing the kingdom. They're multiplying the kingdom. They're having babies, which is advancing the kingdom. That's as clear and as rudimentary as you can get with the multiplication at this level. And they're supposed to keep sin out. Today in our, our, po- our passage, which is post-fall, Yahweh is coveting with the Israelites to act as a kingdom of priests or in the capacity of a royal priesthood, just like they were in the garden. They will work or serve Yahweh as priests. How are they going to do that? By advancing his blessing. In other words, they're going to advance the knowledge of him as a deliverer. Oh, what example are they going to use, Pastor Nick? The Exodus. He just gave them a foundational understanding for all the nations need to know this God, Yahweh, is the one true God that defeated all the false gods and delivered these people out of oppression. That's what they needed to know. That's one, one component of the blessing that, they were, that is obvious to our passage today. And they need to know, by the giving of the law coming up, his righteousness. You want to know what justice looks like? You want to know what righteousness looks like? Watch this kingdom follow my laws, and you will taste righteousness. That's what they are doing in their work today. Listen to this. One commentator states this. Priests stand between God and humans to help bring the humans closer to God. Want to know what your role is? I'm going to say this again. Listen, put yourself in this position. Priests stand between God and humans to help bring the humans closer to God and to help dispense God's truth, justice, favor, discipline, and holiness to the humans. Israel was called to function as such. This is progressive covenant. It's the same function we were supposed to have, only we were doing it, Adam and Eve were do, to do it, all through all of creation. In other words, they were going to show the goodness of, of God to creation by ruling in such a way that identified God's character, who he is to all creation. We have the fall, and now we're going, now, this covenanted people, this chosen people, this people taken out of the world is supposed to show the world who this God is. That's the work that's involved. And then, it's, and then today, as it relates to them keeping, and they will keep the kingdom free from sin. The giving of God's law is not only identifying who their God is in character, it's in line with keeping sin out of this kingdom. The law is so important. As a new Christian, I was told, yeah, we have the law of Jesus. We don't hold to the Old Testament laws. And I was really confused by that. All that back, back end stuff about the laws, none of it comes forward? No. We just look at Jesus Christ and Jesus' laws. Well, what is that? Well, just love. Well, I'm sorry, I'm concrete. I need to know what love looks like. What does it act like? How is it expressed? And Jesus does give reference to that. For goodness sakes, 
he gives the Sermon on the Mount as pointing back to the moral law. That's what Jesus Christ does. We didn't get rid of the law. We need the law. The law points to the righteousness. The law keeps us righteous. You're living in a nation that is headed to lawlessness. How righteous does this nation feel? This would be one of the times when I could say, you, yourselves, understand what it looks like, what it feels like to live in lawlessness. It is unrighteousness. So the law keeps us free from sin. This perfectly aligns with and progressively advances Yahweh's covenant with Abraham. And you go, how, Nick? I need to know what the covenant with Abraham was. This one guy, he pulled out of all the other nations and said, with you, I'm starting my own people. Listen to this, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now Yahweh said to Abram, this is before he renames him Abraham. He says this, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Interesting enough. It's the land of Canaan. He's shown this land to the first guy. He brings them into that land, the, the promised land. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. When he says you, it's the singular, but it's implied in there is his offspring. Because if you're going to have a great nation, those peeps have to come from somewhere those are babies growing up to be big people and a greater and greater and greater family. So we see this covenant being fulfilled because now the house of Jacob is huge. You have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the last. Jacob is the last of the patriarch. That is why his name is referenced. They're looking back. It says this in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and, in, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, in other words, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The families of the earth is code or hyperlink for all the nations of the earth will be blessed because they're all going to receive the blessing. You're going to be the blessing. Let me pose a question. As it relates to, to Adam, we've demonstrated that this, this messianic, excuse me, mosaic or Sinai uh, covenant is like is a progression of the covenant that God had, the conditions, the roles that God had intended for man in the garden. Let me, let me challenge you a second. Sometimes we think of the storyline, the narrative of the garden, and we remember Eve picking up the, the fruit off the tree, the tree of good and evil, that, that tree that God said, don't pick that one. I'm the one that's going to determine good and evil. And as soon as you pick that one, you, you're saying to me, I'm going to be autonomous. I'm going to be like God. I don't need you, God. And we think that, oh, well, that's kind of weird that Adam, that Adam got nailed with the, the understanding that he fell. It was clearly Eve that fell first. In fact, she even persuaded him to take from the fruit of the tree. Why does Adam get such a big beef? Why does he get jammed up in history? Well, first off, he's the federal head. He is the leader and the one that is representing. So he is responsible Hello, men, and our, and our relationships in our family. We are responsible ones in our family and how they are raised. But I want to ask you this question to get you thinking. As it relates to Adam allowing Satan to be in Eve's presence, the Hebrew narrative of the Garden of Eden implies Adam is present with Eve. It's all there in the grammar. 
as it relates to Adam allowing Satan to be in Eve's presence to tempt her to rebel against God by eating the fruit of the tree of good and evil, does Adam's first sin fall into the category of service known as working or keeping? Is his first sin a working sin or a keeping sin? I think we know the answer. His first sin is a keeping sin. He fails. We have Satan present in the garden. We have Satan confronting his wife. He does nothing. It is his lack of leadership, his lack of failing to keep the garden temple free from sin. That is Adam's first sin. He fails to keep. Now, I want to ask you this. I think you all know the, the answer to this. Which is more difficult? Which do you fail in? Keeping or working? Keeping sin out of your life or working to advance God's kingdom? I can tell you mine. Mine's keeping. Every single day I sin. And it kills me. I'm hoping the next day I won't sin. But Paul graciously in chapter 7 says we don't arrive, if you will. It's kind of a way of saying, man, this battle is going to be going on. But I want you to hear, this is an important component of all of this. We need to remember this. Let's finish with this, the, the, the now, as it relates to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. If you want to turn there, this is the one that I did not put on, the, on it. You can read it. We're going to end with this, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. And I will, hopefully you and I will all see that this is not new. This is a progression of what we've already seen. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says this, but you are a chosen race. Yeah, God chose uh, Abraham, and out of Abraham come the people, the physical people. That's us. We're not the physical people. We're the spiritual people. We are those that were obedient to God. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Uh, did he pull that out of thin air? Nope. We see it in the garden. We see it in the covenant, the Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant. A holy nation. Oh, my goodness, the exact same wording. A people for his own possession. It's all there. It's not new. That you may, and here we go. Here is the work component that we saw in the words, the two words, work and keep from the garden. Here's the work component. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. In the garden, he's dealing with the physical. Have babies, and you're going to advance the kingdom. Everybody's saved in the, in the, the temple kingdom. Just have babies. That's no longer true post-fall. So he's saying, you want to advance the kingdom? You've got to share the gospel. That's how you advance the kingdom. We're still doing the same work as a priest, as holy, a priest, a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. We can see that. Oh my goodness, that's still the same work. It's clearer to me now. I have a responsibility to advance this king. This is my work. I need to share the gospel. Once you were not a people, just like Israel, but now you are God's people. Once you received, excuse me, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, pastor, smarty pants, where's the keep? If this is truly in alignment and correlates with the, the temple, then we should see a keep aspect. Well, hello, verse 11. Let's take a look at verse 11. Remember, keeping has to do with protecting against removing any sin. That's why 11. 11 isn't a mistake. 
by Peter and go, what did you go? Why'd you jump over to that, Peter? Peter understands the covenant from the temple garden to, the, to, to what is ultimately going to be the tabernacle, the, 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 the temple itself. Listen to this. Beloved. And remember, at this point, it has already been testified that we, each of us are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple, the indwelling place that the Spirit indwells. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, what the people of Israel were, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, in other words, falsely, because you're showing righteousness, that they may see your good deeds, in other words, they may see your righteousness, and glorify God on the day of visitation when he comes again. Do you see the work and the keep? Do you see the consistency? Do you see the progression of the covenants? We are in the covenant of grace at that time of that writing. The Israelites had failed miserably in their role as royal priests and, and, and their role as a holy nation. They were an abomination. Pastor Pete was showing today that the northern kingdom was divorced. God divorces, gives them a, a metaphorical divorce decree. And, the, and then he goes on to say, and you, Judah, the southern nation, you're worse than the other one, than the northern kingdom. You're terrible. So the Israelites failed miserably in their, in their role as royal priests in a holy nation. But Jesus has succeeded perfectly. That's why he's the only Savior. And he has made us to be God's eternally treasured possession. You want to know what your identity is? And I don't know whether or not you believe it. Next time you go to sin, ask yourself, am I really believing this? Right before you sin, if you can remember it. I am God, God Almighty, Yahweh, the self-existent creator of all. I am his treasured possession. If you can remember that, if you live out your identity, you'll be less likely to sin. And thus, Jesus Christ has made it possible because even when we do sin, we are forgiven for our sin because of what Christ did on the cross. Jesus Christ atoned for our sin, our rebellion against God, thus making us worthy, treasured, a people to be treasured by, by God. We now are this, this God's eternal possession, uh, treasured possession. Jesus has made all that possible by atoning for our sin. And then, anytime we do sin, he forgives us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And if we'll take the time to ask him for the grace not to sin again, he will extend the grace that we do not sin again. We can be the royal priesthood. We can be the holy set-apart nation because of what Christ has done. This will be the, the ultimate blessing. Share the gospel. Share the righteousness of Christ with others. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Father, I thank you for the amazing consistency with your word. The, the grandness of this story, the truth of your plan of salvation, the goodness that you demonstrate to us unworthy people, sinners who were in rebellion, just like the first uh, generation of the Israelites. And yet, and yet, you saved us. You put us on the path of righteousness. You give us a Savior that is, is 
interacting with us as we petition him for his grace, who is loving upon us. He's even, when we don't petition, your son intercedes to the Father. He intercedes to you, O Heavenly Father. We have so much grace, so much mercy, that I pray that this will overwhelm us in the midst of our temptation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.